0: This program was produced with the support of StoryHive, creativity connected by TELUS. For more information, please visit storyhive.com.
1: The following is based on a true story that happened in Grand Prairie, Alberta, Canada in 1918. The story is based on historical primary sources, including surviving case files, criminal reports, and other contemporary documents and accounts. The first person accounts spoken throughout this narrative are taken word for word from the surviving transcripts. We have engaged voice actors to read portions of these transcripts, and while these quotes have been at times abridged or slightly rearranged for clarity, every word is based on the historical record.
0: Some of the scenes described include details of violent acts. Listener and parental discretion is advised.
1: As author Wally Tansom wrote in his book, The Foulest of Murders, detailing the events of the 1918 Six Murder case, Coroner Percy Hugh Belcher was, quote, An impressively large, white-goateed and austere magistrate, he came to preside over Grand Prairie's Frontier Court, striking terror in every culprit's heart. Appointed in 1916, at the age of 60, Belcher was the first travelling magistrate for the province of Alberta colourful and crotchety. Belcher had formerly served for 15 years in the Northwest Mounted Police, and he would prove to be central to this case, serving in Grand Prairie in 1918 as both the official coroner and the only magistrate in the region. He presided over the official inquests into the Snyder and Patton murders, as well as the preliminary criminal court trials some two years later. We'll get to those trials eventually, and we'll also learn a lot more about author Wally Tansom in a future episode. But in this episode, we're going to take a look at the first week after the murders, the impact on the community, the details of the official inquests, and the capture of the first real suspects.
0: On the morning of June 20, 1918, Coroner Belcher arrived at the Snyder scene while the fire in Joseph Snyder's cabin was still too hot to approach. With only one body discovered at the north end of the building, Belcher returned to town to write up an affidavit of coroner. This document formed his official opinion that the body found
2: and did not come to his death from natural causes or from mere accident or mischance, but that he came to his death from violence or unfair means, under circumstances requiring investigation by coroner's inquest. So help me God." P. H. Belcher, a coroner for the province of Alberta.
0: Later that day, Belcher signed a second document, a warrant to summon jury. This document officially commanded Corporal Allen of the Alberta Provincial Police to summon six good and lawful men to attend the crime scene as jurors. He commanded that this jury and Allen return to the Snyder scene at noon to begin the official inquiry. Corporal Allen summoned John E. Thompson, Ross McMillan, Herbert W. Matherson, John A. Creer, William C. Pratt, and William M. Salmond. Failing to answer this summons would have cost each man a $40 fine to be paid to the Crown, whereas fulfilling their duty would earn each man a fee of $2 per day, plus meals and eligible expenses. All six men turned up at the Snyder Place as summoned, and the same six men were called again as jurors in the patent inquest. The two crimes already inextricably linked. Six dead men, six good and lawful men tasked with overseeing their justice. I'm Chris Cipolla.
1: I'm Chris Beauchamp. This is Blood on the Prairie. With a population of about 500 people in 1918, the remote village of Grand Prairie lacked a permanent courtroom. The Snyder inquest took place on June 26th at the Grand Prairie Club. By this time, both murder scenes had been discovered. Witnesses gave their testimony to the assembled jurors under the watchful gaze of Percy Belcher and the curious townfolk who packed the small community hall rented for the occasion. The patent inquest was called in the same place two days later on June 28th. The Attorney General's Department of the Government of Alberta paid $10 per day for the hall rental, one of the numerous expenses incurred as part of the investigation. It's worth noting that everyone involved in the inquest proceedings was paid for their time. From the driver, A.V. Thompson, for his car service, or doctors Conroy and McDonald, who were paid $10 for each of the six post-mortem examinations to fees for witnesses, jurists, investigators, and our favourite, the stenographers, Marie A. Shank and Marjorie Clark. In a case where almost every voice documented in the historical record is that of a man, it is thanks to the work of these two women, and others like them, that we know this story at all. They faithfully transcribed hours of testimony in real time, and then spent considerable additional time typing up copies and organizing the material. Marie A. Shank earned $11.30 for her work on the Snyder Inquest files. These women were truly the first to process and understand the case documents, and we owe them a debt of gratitude over 100 years later.
0: In the archival material we have from these inquests, There are almost as many pages of accounting records as actual documents about the testimony and evidence. There are no photographs in these files, no maps or drawings of the crime scenes, no detailed lists of the physical evidence found. We don't have the initial investigative crime reports from Corporal Allen and Detective Sergeant Egan, nor do we have any documents prepared directly by Doctors Conroy and MacDonald. All we really have is their spoken testimony as recorded in these inquest files, typed up a few days after the crimes. Everything else has been lost to time, if it ever existed at all. And yet there's still a lot here. Almost all of the spoken testimony we've heard on the podcast to date has come from these two initial inquest files. And these documents are only a fraction of the material we have uncovered about the case. We've done our best to tell the story to this point based on what was known at the time. As more testimony and evidence emerged in the coming weeks, some of this information will get challenged and reconsidered. But for the purposes of the inquests, the primary goal was to record the immediate evidence and to refer the case for official investigation.
1: As an aside, we've occasionally heard some of the questions posed at the inquests in our voice actor segments. We've brought these questions to life for our purposes in the voice of Percy Belcher, but it's likely that some or all of the questions posed were actually asked by Crown Prosecutor M.W. Eager.
0: At the conclusion of the two inquests, the six good and lawful men added their signatures to the Inquisition documents drawn up by Belcher, certifying that the testimony and evidence collected was true and that all six dead men had been murdered at the hands of some person or persons unknown.
1: While the inquests were documenting the known facts, people in the area were also sharing the story of the murders through the tried-and-true mechanisms of gossip, rumour, and myth. As one local homesteader, William Stanley Bird, wrote from the nearby community of La LaGlasse in a letter to his father.
3: Dear Dad, I got your letter all right, and I was very glad to hear from you. This is a pretty nice country, but everybody's hair is on end just now two cowboys from montana came up here last week and murdered seven men six germans and a russian there was a report that the government was going to seize all the money the germans had in the bank so they drew out all their money that's the reason for the murders seven mounted police came from edmonton and rounded up the two punchers one had seventeen hundred dollars on him the other three thousand. One was shot before he was caught Everybody in town who could pack a gun had to scour the country for them. Some of the victims were drowned and some burned. One had his head cut off and some were shot. They were all killed two at a time except for the seventh. Nearly everybody's carrying a gun now.
1: Of course, knowingly or not, Byrd was exaggerating most of the details of the crimes, including the number of victims and their causes of death. But William Byrd did get a few things right. The local police had just captured two suspects south of the Wapiti River, Norman Shorty Keeler and Edwin Salisbury. We'll learn about them soon enough. Bird was also right in noting that the victims were all of Eastern European descent, a fact which was polarizing within the community.
0: Settlers of predominantly British heritage were already talking about the immigrants convinced that the crime was carried out by other Eastern Europeans and that the victims were caught up in some sort of plot gone awry. According to local historian Alyssa Curry, former executive director of the South Peace Regional Archives, the dynamic between these competing ethnic groups was inflamed by the tensions of the First World War.
4: These victims are from Eastern Europe and... Particularly around the time of the First World War, there seems to be a little bit of, I don't want to say conflict, but a a little bit of tension between those settlers and the predominantly British, Western European settlers. uh, Particularly when many of these community members are seeing the, the British or Western European settlers step up and volunteer to, to serve in the war. They use the term often immigrants to refer to these Eastern European immigrants, uh, in spite of the fact that they themselves are also immigrants, um, simply from a different place.
0: On that same day that William Stanley Byrd wrote that letter to his father, June 27th, 1918, the Claremont Independent, a local newspaper, reported on the case under the headline,
5: Wholesale Murder on the Prairie. Four more corpses to add to the two already found. Six men were sent to their doom in one night, apparently, within four or five miles from Claremont and Grand Prairie. Such are the bare facts that confront us. Zimmer, Patton, Russian Jack, and Pulowski were found at Patton's farm in a badly decomposed state on Monday last by Sandy Peebles, who went to see why Patton's horses were running wild in his wheat fields. Robbery, it is presumed, was the motive as both Zimmer and Patton were known to have money in large quantities.
0: And while this report also got a few details wrong, including two of the four victims' names, it did accurately capture the mood of the community at the time, as the paper continued.
5: That such a wholesale murder has taken place on the prairie is too appalling, as it is the worst crime that has ever been perpetuated in Western Canada and perhaps all of Canada. No clues have so far been obtainable, and the murderer or murderers have a good start, as Joe Snyder and his nephew were sent to their death a week ago this morning. It is a most gruesome affair, and every effort will have to be made to apprehend the guilty party or parties, as people on lonely farms, and elsewhere for that matter, will not feel like staying around their places at night with such desperados at large.
0: The article went on to briefly editorialize about the state of policing in the region.
5: We have nothing to say against the provincial police in so far as what they do is concerned. But not only from here, but from all over Alberta, there is an insistent demand for the Royal Northwest Mounted Police back again. The Dominion government made a stupendous blunder when they took them away, and it should be rectified without any further delay.
0: The recently formed Alberta Provincial Police had taken over policing in Alberta from the Royal Northwest Mounted Police a year earlier in May of 1917. And it's clear that the handful of police in the region were a bit underprepared for a case like this. To be blunt, they were in over their heads, more accustomed to chasing down bootleggers than uncovering mass murderers
4: what most people want to talk about, what most people have recorded or comment on often in relation to what they feel is the police's incompetence is related to bootlegging. <laughs> and they there seems to be a lot of investment on the part of the government in persecuting bootleggers. Um, but when things like... A murder of six recent immigrants happens, things seem to kind of fall apart. And what the citizens are, are seeing or feeling is that it's not getting the same degree of attention.
0: The local police failed to secure the crime scenes, which allowed curious onlookers to poke around and almost certainly disturb valuable evidence. Over time, other criticisms emerged about the Alberta Provincial Police's handling of the case, And we'll explore some of those policing issues in future episodes.
1: In addition to the bare facts of the crime scenes, the inquest testimony also provided some human insights into the relationships between witnesses and victims. As we've made clear by now, the crimes at the two properties were almost certainly related. The murders occurred on two consecutive nights, a mere three to four miles apart. Let's review the direct physical evidence linking the crime scenes, which included Patton's missing 38 caliber revolver, a similar gun found on Snyder's sod roof, the five spent shells and Patton's key ring found at Joseph Snyder's farm. But there were also a number of personal connections discovered in the inquest testimony linking the men we've met to date. Even a cursory review of some of these connections raises interesting questions.
0: Patton's partner, Charles Zimner, found murdered in the wagon at the Patton farm had actually sold his farm to Daniel Lowe a mere month before for the sum of $2,000. It would emerge later that Joseph Snyder had been in talks with Zimner about buying the same property but Daniel Lowe beat him to it. Ignis Patton had
1: allegedly sold his crops to Daniel Lowe as well, as part of his effort to clear up his business in Grand Prairie before heading north. It appears that Lowe had not yet settled that account at the time of the murders.
0: Joseph Snyder had actually visited Ignis Patton's place the Sunday before they were both killed. According to Sandy Peebles, Snyder would visit Patton occasionally to procure fish from the Bear Creek. He would always stop in for a visit at Peebles Place on the way. On this Sunday, the Patton crew didn't have any fish, but insisted Joseph wait while they put a net in the creek so they could send him home with some.
1: And of course, Daniel Lowe had visited the Snyder House earlier on the night of their murders a few short hours before someone killed Joseph Snyder and his nephew
2: Stanley. The night of the 19th, I was over to Snyder's about one hour. I did not look at the watch, but I think it was about eight. And I stayed about one hour. We were in the barn, putting a pair of boots on a colt, putting leggings on, as the colt had weak legs. I had been there other times. During questioning,
1: Lowe was prompted to describe an unusual event that occurred on that visit. Something or someone had spooked Joseph Snyder's horses, and some of the animals ended up down in the
2: slough. I noticed horses come out of the slough at one time, I think just before we left. I think we had one of the leggings on the colt probably about 20 minutes after nine, I would judge if I were guessing. Snyder's nephew ran down to the slough by the well. He was the first one to run down and Snyder, who was up in the barn where he and I was putting the boot on the colt, jumped up and he said, what the world does matter? Something is scaring the horses or something. Well, the horses had got out of the slough when we got there and were all in the yard.
1: It's not made clear in the inquest documents whether investigators thought this incident was related to the crime. But it was apparently odd for the horses to behave like that. Investigators later speculated that someone may have been hiding near the slough, biding their time until dark. Or perhaps the incident meant nothing. Daniel Lowe went home around 9.30 p.m. and went to bed within an hour or so. He woke up only a few hours later at 2.30 a.m. when he heard the cries for help in the gruff man's voice.
0: There's a lot to unpack in these complex interrelationships and we'll be revisiting some of these connections again in the future. In 1918... These types of connections invited all sorts of theories and speculation. People love to talk. But as historian Alyssa Curry explained to us, the settler lifestyle was difficult and it necessitated communal trade, barter, and connections among the locals. It shouldn't be surprising that most of the people in this area knew and associated with each other. It was a small community and to survive, Settlers had to rely on one another.
4: You do see neighbors coming together and supporting um, one another for the mutual benefit of the community. You know, if you don't get the potatoes in the ground or if you don't get the, your, your kitchen garden going, you're gonna have real problems. And not, you know, I might go hungry for a few days, but I might have to pack up and leave because I don't have enough food to feed me or my family. And you often at that point, you don't see a lot of families at that point, you see mostly single men, which is also the case for most of the victims here, I believe.
1: When dealing with so many names and facts in the archival material, it's easy to get a bit lost. It's also easy to forget that these crimes carried a very real human cost. There are glimpses of this among the invoices, receipts, crime reports and transcripts, but these moments are fleeting and easily missed when treating the case as a simple whodunit. Sandy Peebles had been friends with Joseph Snyder, and we talked last episode about how Snyder's death likely affected Peebles. But Sandy Peebles had also been friends with Ignis Patton. It was Peebles who reported the eerily quiet Patton House to police. And it was Peebles who accompanied them to investigate the scene. It's hard to imagine that Peebles was unaffected by his grim discovery and by the task of trying to identify the badly decomposing bodies of the men he knew. This is from the Patton Inquest Testimony, where Sandy Peebles identified his friend, Ignis Patton.
2: This is Exhibit B, frame building. Did you see two bodies lying in there?
3: Yes. Could you identify one or both of them? I could say that the one to the east is that of Patton by his moccasins, as when he was at our place. He said he'd killed the moose and made the moccasins himself. He put his foot up on the chair, and I took particular notice to the moccasins. And they were on the man. As to
2: his general build, would you say that it was the body of Patton? Yes.
1: The Patton victims were buried in the Roman Catholic Church Cemetery, although according to Wally Tansom, their bodies were later moved when the church burned down. They now lie in the Grand Prairie Cemetery, the same resting place as Joseph and Stanley Snyder.
0: With the formal inquests wrapping up, the community was eager to bring the person or persons unknown to justice. As author Wally Tansom wrote, in The Foulest of Murders,
1: Fear permeated the small community following the finding of the six murdered men. Doors were kept locked. Loaded guns were kept under settlers pillows or near at hand during the day. Neighbors eyed neighbors with suspicion.
0: So it was a huge relief when word arrived in town that there were two confirmed suspects, even though they were currently at large. The Patton inquest had heard testimony about a break in and a robbery south of the Wapiti River. A witness described seeing a man there who matched the description of one Norman Keeler. Keeler was a known associate of Ignis Patton and John Wuwand. He had been seen leaving Grand Prairie with another man on the night of the Snyder murders. This lead was enough for Corporal Allen to report the matter up the chain and he was ordered to form a posse to go after the suspects. Allen had no trouble finding some willing men to join the posse and pursue the men. At the bottom of the front page of the June 27th Claremont Independent, which we quoted from earlier in this episode, another article appeared, clearly added, at the last minute.
5: Two suspects captured. Word came just before going to press that two of the supposed murderers were captured last night on the south side of the Wapiti River. One of them was wounded twice before surrendering.
0: With two suspects in custody and the preliminary inquest concluded, the community was likely feeling some much-needed relief, a mood that would prove to be short-lived.
1: In the next episode of Blood on the Prairie, we'll follow the posse in pursuit of Norman Keeler and his partner, Edwin Salisbury. We'll meet investigator J.D. Bulldog Nicholson, appointed by the Attorney General's office to take over the case from the local police. Nicholson's arrival would open a new chapter in the investigation, and his suspicions would soon land on some familiar names.
0: Blood on the Prairie is produced by Chris Cipolla and Chris Beauchamp. We'd like to thank the South Peace Regional Archives, the Provincial Archives of Alberta, Alyssa Curry, Karen Simonson, Dr. David Leonard, Brenda LaCroix, the family of Wallace Tansom, Jason Halva, Al Peterson, Casper Towns, Gordie Hackstead, Richard Pizzata, and Laura Beauchamp. Blood on the Prairie was developed thanks to funding provided by TELUS StoryHive. Special thanks to Tara Jean Stevens, Jessica Gibson, and the National Screen Institute. Music used in this episode by Unreal SFX, Roy Spiegler, The David Roy Collective, Matt Stewart Evans, James Paul Mitchell, Oakfield, Muted, Yaskel Raz, Ohad Ben Ari, and Michael Vignola. Our voice actors in this episode included Clint Webb, Scott Maitland, Casper Towns, Grant Buchanan, Lyle West, and Richard Pizzata. Blood on the Prairie is available on all major podcast platforms. For show notes and access to archival sources and other documents relating to the case, as well as photographs from both the 1918 era and the crime scenes in 2021, find us at bloodontheprairie.com.
4: This program was produced with the support of TELUS.